Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Yes, SJWs Do Actually Code. I'm here today with my great friend, Sam Livingston Gray. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Greater Than Code. That was, in fact, Astrid County, and I am here to welcome also Rain Hendricks to the show. Hello, happy to be here, and I am happy to welcome Coraline Emke. Hey there. We have a very special guest with us today, Lori Voss. Lori Voss is a web developer who builds big, fast websites using whatever technology works best and is embarrassingly passionate about making the web better for everyone. He started a web development company in high school and spent the last 21 years building sites at every level from front end through the application stack down to the level of DBA and system administration. He has big company experience from several years at a small startup called Yahoo, and most of his other jobs have been at startups, including his last, Awesome, where he was co-founder and technical lead. Lori is now at NPM, where they're making JavaScript the best language in the world to make web services and anything else. Welcome, Lori. Hello. Thanks for having me. Very happy to have you here. We like to start off each podcast with a little getting to know you session. So, Lori, I want to ask you, what's your superpower and when did you discover it? <laughs> That's an excellent question because I do literally have a thing that I refer to as my superpower, and it's systems analysis. I'm the person who we we have a channel in our Slack which called Ops Log, which is where all of the uh, Nagios alerts and other things that are going wrong will show up. So it's sort of the nerve center of where you can see what's going on with our systems. And I'm the person who can look at the first three things and go, it's that service that's wrong. You know, it's services A, B, and C are re- reporting things, but it's actually service D that's the problem for reasons, and I don't know why. And 10 minutes later, it will appear, it will turn out that yes, it is in fact service D. And how did you know that? Like, I just have a big picture sense of what's going on in architecture. It's a thing that just sort of accumulates after 20 years, as far as I can tell. So you, um, you started doing web dev in high school. What got you interested in that initially? It's hard to say. It's so central to me now is why isn't everybody else constantly interested in web dev? It's so fun, right? Like the web was intrinsically interesting to me because I grew up on a tiny island in the Caribbean that is very far away from everywhere. So I definitely remember throughout my childhood, like seeing stuff on TV and feeling left out, right? There were no 800 numbers that worked. I could never go to that thing on AOL. I could never find out what was going on in the world until the web arrived. And suddenly I had exactly as much access to the web as anybody anywhere did. And that was amazing. That was a really, I guess, empowering experience. It was unlocking the whole universe. There was nothing I couldn't get. There was software I could download. There was information I could learn. And I could add to the web. Like I could publish stuff to the web myself. There were no barriers. There was no, it didn't cost anything. And that was amazing, and that's still amazing to me. So that's my driving power behind the web. Do you remember uh, the first website you built? It's funny because I just dug it out of storage the other day, like a week ago. I was looking through my backups, and I found I had the original code, and it's all flat HTML. So it still renders perfectly. It looks great. Um, it's very bright blue. Everything I've built ever is always some shade of blue. I don't like blue. That means we can't be friends anymore. Oh, no. That explains the hair. <laughs> yes, indeed. And also why I'm constantly wearing blue, because it just it's my favorite color. Um, yeah, it was called Seldo's Home of Overambition. And that's really what it was. It was like it was just a list of things that I sort of wanted to do and had made logos for but hadn't actually done. Which is it's very me of me, and I was fifteen at the time and I'm still very much that person. I'm like, I'm definitely gonna do this. Here's project side project number forty on top of the stack of the thirty nine other side projects that aren't done yet. 
So in high school, you were making your own HTML pages and getting connected with the world. Did you end up going to college? I did. Trinidad is tiny, so it only had one university at the time, and it was not a very good university. So I decided to go to college in the UK. That's because that's where my mother was from. It was not a good call. I should have gone to college in the States, which is where nearly everybody I went to school went to college. But I went to a university called Warwick. And you've never heard of Warwick because there's only two English universities you've heard of, and they're Oxford and Cambridge. And (laughs) and Warwick is where the people who didn't get into Oxford and Cambridge go. In fact, nearly everybody who goes to that college is like, I could have been a contender. (laughs) Uh, you didn't get into cambridge but it was a lovely university uh like uh in the middle of a field in the middle of nowhere and i did computer science there and my notable achievement as a computer science undergrad was i got through my entire three-year course without ever ever having to write any code that counted towards my degree (laughs) wow Uh, uh how did you manage that I was always that guy on group projects who volunteered to write the documentation, usually by putting together a website. <laughs> so I wrote lots of websites. I was writing tons of code. I was writing tons of CSS and JavaScript, but no one was grading me on that. And uh, yeah, I, I wrote Node Java, which was our primary programming language for that degree that got graded. I wrote a couple small things. I had to write, like, you know, to prove I could code once in a while and have to like put together a data structure on. I believe I came first in the Bash programming class. <laughs> but I never did any real programming. Like, I never did any of the stuff that the programmers who considered themselves good programmers on that course thought of as the real job because I was always a web developer. Like, the programming is sort of secondary to the building the web for me. I want to point out a couple of things. Um, when you said real programming, for the people who are just listening, you used air quotes, which I'm very happy about because... <laughs> You said none of the programming you did was graded, but I want to thank you for acknowledging that HTML and CSS is programming because I think a lot of people don't consider it programming and HTML and CSS are absolutely programming and it's one of those skills that we devalue and that people don't consider real programming and you did not do that and I just couldn't let that pass. Yeah, it's one of those things that bugs me because, like I said, I'm, I don't consider myself a programmer first. I consider myself a web developer first. The programming is the thing that I do to get web development done. So the web development is the important thing, the more interesting thing to me. Partly, yes, obviously web development is programming. Obviously CSS and, and HTML and obviously JavaScript are programming. But also people shouldn't get so hung up on whether or not you know, what they're doing is programming as long as it's, it is creative and useful. Yeah. If you're writing code, you're programming. Yeah. We tend to get hung up on this idea of Turing completeness as, as meaning programming, but you know, for people who are learning that teaches you valuable skills about syntax checking and making sure that everything lines up and going from an idea in your head to code on in an editor to something on the screen that is what you wanted or it's not what you wanted. And then you have to figure out how to make it more like what you wanted. And that act is programming. The part of figuring out logic and, and using Turing machines is kind of secondary as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I just wanted to say two things. One is that Turing completeness is a really bad proxy for expressiveness or power. And <laughs> the second is that I've learned easily a dozen languages and CSS is legitimately the hardest one I've ever tried to learn. <laughs> That's from a guy who does Haskell. Think and things that are worse than Haskell. <laughs> the thing about HTML and CSS is that they're excellent gateways to Turing complete programming languages to other programming languages because 
there's a pile of them out there and you can take somebody's working web page and change one thing and it's not going to crash, right? Like your HTML and CSS, they don't crash in the way that other programming languages crash. They just change unexpectedly. They're the perfect playground for a novice programmer going, what does this do? Because the worst thing is that you make things ugly rather than you make things wrong. And that's a much more rewarding feedback loop than just a cryptic error message and, you know, error on line one. CSS also teaches you pretty early on about the weird, unexpected behavior that results from unexpected <laughs> coupling and weird inheritance rules. Yeah, not sure if that's a pro or a con of CSS as a teaching language. <laughs> I guess it depends on how you look at it. If you're trying to get stuff done, it's not super great. So after university, um, we mentioned in the bio you worked at Yahoo. Was that your first job out of university, or did you go through some startups in between? No, I worked at a bunch of startups. My first job out of college, it was 2003. So it was close enough to the dot-com crash that it was not, uh, it was not a great time to be looking for a job as a web developer, especially a web developer straight out of college. It was really weird. Like I had at that point five years of web development experience, but because I had just gone to college and come back out, people were like, Oh, he doesn't know anything. <laughs> but. You know, before I went to college, I was earning more money than when, than right after I left college because I'd, I'd suddenly somehow like flipped somebody's bit and I'd gone from self-taught with five years of experience to doesn't know anything. So I got a really terrible job at this crappy little company in London with an actively homophobic boss, which was super fun as my first job out of college. It came up literally on the first day. Like we all went to lunch and we were talking about computer games, which you think is a fairly safe topic. And I mentioned that I thought one of the fun things about the game, The Sims, is that all of The Sims are inherently bisexual. I thought that was cool. And he was like, I don't want those perverts in my game. And I was like, oh, great. <laughs> so I guess shouldn't be out at work at this job. Yep. Good times. So that was a good first year of, of work. But then I, uh, I went to work for a ringtone company. And you can tell how much I hated my previous job that working for a ringtone company was considered a step up. And you can tell what time, what uh, year it was by the fact that ringtone company was a thing you could do. Seriously. Yeah. And then I went to work for Yahoo. And Yahoo are the ones who moved me to the States. Is homophobia something that you have struggled with throughout your career? It's something that I struggled with, obviously, as a teenager. And I got it out of the way faster than I was expecting. There were a couple key events there. One was in, I guess it would have been like the middle of 2000. I wrote about this just the other day. I found a blog by Joel Spolsky, um, the CEO of Stack Overflow, who's since spun out Trello and a bunch of other stuff. And Joel's blog at the time, you know, it was mostly about software. People read it all the time, but it also had a little about me section. The about me section mentioned his boyfriend, now his husband, very matter of factly, just, you know, as a by the by, it was there. And I was like, whoa, your tech CEO can be gay. I didn't think that was a thing. And like my whole expectation of what the industry would let me do changed as a result of that. And my ambition changed. It was like, oh, I'm not just trying to like fly under the radar and get by. Like I can do whatever the hell I want. If he can do it, I can do it. Also, college was a wonderful experience for that. College is this excellent, safe playground to sort of like experiment with your identity and, and expression and, you know, what the universe will let you get away with. Um, and I very much went full bore on that. I was very much like career gay at university, very much the opposite of my closeted teenage self. So by the time I got into the working world, I was very much not queer as in gay, but queer as in fuck you. <laughs> 
Nice. And, uh, and it, it stayed that way pretty much the whole way through. One of the weird side effects of which is that people come out to me a lot. This is a thing that happens to me and has and continues to happen to me to this day. Because I am very queer and very visible and very in tech, people in tech who are closeted in tech come out to me with surprising frequency, like one a week, like slides into my DMs and is like, I've never told anyone this before, which is awesome. <laughs> like, it's funny because I don't consider myself like a particularly warm or welcoming person, but people come out to me all the time. And I've like, just through sheer practice, I've got pretty good at helping somebody through those first steps, which are so important. I find the same thing as, as a transgender woman. A lot of people will come out to me and I do my best to help them sort of like let them know that's fine. If you're, I don't know, something that happens to, that I hear a lot is I think about gender a lot. I wonder if I'm a woman and I tell people it says people don't think that way. If you're questioning, odds are you're trans and you should embrace that and accept that and decide what you want to do about it. Coraline, you asked about homophobia and I was expecting stories of external homophobia, like your boss at your first post-college job, right? But instead, Laura, you talked a lot about what I take as getting rid of internalized homophobia, which uh, actually seems to me to be much more important and transformative. I mean, I don't know much about it being pretty much a straight dude, but would you say that that's accurate? I think I could focus on the former because I was privileged to avoid the latter. Apart from that first job, I made very sure that any job that I went into after that was not going to be in an environment where external homophobia was going to be a problem. It was one of the questions I would ask in an interview. It'd be like, yeah, so super gay, is that going to be a problem? Like that was literally, you know, in my opening questions. <laughs> oh, good. And Yahoo was, Yahoo's answer was hilarious because Yahoo's was like, are you crazy? We're run by gays, this whole company. <laughs> um, <laughs> and obviously the last two companies I worked at, I found it. So I was able to set the culture. I was able to say that's not going to be a problem. So yeah, because I was able to be selective there, I was able to focus on my own. Other people who find it harder to get jobs for various reasons are not going to have that kind of advantage. I would love to go to a company and ask about transgender healthcare and hear, we're run by transgender people. <laughs> <laughs> It was Aria Stewart, I think, suggested that I start doing this, and I, I do it now. I get unsolicited emails from recruiters all the time. So one of the things that I've started doing is I respond apparently entirely seriously. I'm like, yes, this sounds like a really interesting opportunity, this you know Java development company in Iceland, but I can't possibly work anywhere that doesn't have trans-inclusive healthcare. Can you tell me what your situation is with trans-inclusive healthcare? And the recruiter sort of goes, oh, and scurries away. Yeah. And comes back and either says yes or no, or we don't know. And it's usually we don't know. And it's sometimes no. And then I say, well, you know, then I guess this conversation is to stop. And this creates like a tiny, but, you know, visible signal that the recruiter can complain about going, well, we lost a really great candidate uh, because we don't have trans inclusive healthcare. And it's the tiniest possible thing, but it's turning these otherwise, these emails that I would otherwise ignore into at least something. Yeah, I remember seeing, I don't remember if it was on Twitter or a blog post years and years ago, someone suggesting that as, um, and they, they dubbed it microactivism. And, um, I do exactly the same thing. That's a great way to, to raise awareness. And I appreciate that you do that. For extra credit points, of course, when they come back and say, yes, we have trans inclusive healthcare, you can say, well, what exactly does that mean? What do you cover? <laughs> yeah, that's a very vague term. That's as very true. 
as an employer, I know that the answer to that question is incredibly difficult because the answer is, what state are you in? And uh, you know, a whole bunch of other factors. Like you can't answer it in general because each state and each, each insurance company has different definitions of all of those things. So you can generally say these things are available, but you can't say we definitely provide this because it's not necessarily going to be available to that employee where they are. Yeah. So um, you're at NPM now. What kind of steps have you, you you mentioned for the last two companies you founded, making sure that the culture was welcoming? What does that look like in concrete terms? It's not a mission accomplished situation. It is a process that is ongoing. And we're hopefully getting better at it rather than worse. It's all sorts of things. First, it's just the, you know, the, the founders set the culture from the top down. So if the founders say, you know, we are inclusive, we are welcoming, we try to work against implicit power structures, I think is how I would put it. We try and make our power structures exist, but they should be explicit and nobody should be getting power that isn't, you know, explicitly given to them. It's hard to say specifically what we've done. Like, obviously, we do all of the basic things. Like, there's no um, anything along the lines of, you know, explicit sexism, racism, any kind of ism is out the window. But that's the lowest possible bar, right? Like, we're not actively discriminating against anybody. That's just, that's just where you have to start. We did a bunch of small things that sort of slowly accumulated. I remember one of the earliest ones was that we created a guy's jar, <laughs> Um, and anytime anybody referred to a group of people who, of mixed gender as guys, um, you had to put a dollar in the jar. And it, it eventually cured us of that habit, mostly. Sam just held up it, uh, an index card that says you guys on it. Um, in the early days of the podcast, we had some people who made a habit of using the word guys. And for those who are just listening, we generally record this on Skype with video on. So Sam might flash that flashcard up. As a reminder, and then Mandy would be nice enough to edit the guys out. One of the other things that we did was we noticed that over-talking in a meeting was a problem. Like the people who were most talkative would continue to be the people who were most talkative. And there was a culture of interruption and that this privileged the people who were more, more self-confident or just more overbearing in any given conversation. So we established a culture that of not interrupting people, of indicating that you wish to speak by some visual manner. Either you raise your hand a little bit or depending how, how formally the meeting is being run, we have like some specific hand signals that Isaac uses that indicate like agreement versus I want to interrupt versus I disagree. I'm forgetting what they are right now in any way. Uh, they're not going to translate on the audio. But again, that's one of those situations where you're taking an implicit ability. You're taking this implicit fact that like being a confident person lets you butt into a conversation and, and take the conversation where you want it to go. And you're making it ex explicit, which is that there's a person who's running the meeting and they decide who gets to speak. And they pick that on the basis of you raised your hand and who raised their hand first. And it means that different people speak in meetings and different decisions are arrived at and the conversation goes a different direction. I've definitely been in work cultures where the culture was argumentative and the whole notion of strong opinions loosely held, I think, leads to an argumentative culture. So collaboration is one of the things that I value most as a developer. And I find that I am not prone to interruption and I'm not prone to shouting other, over other people. And at some jobs, that's actually worked to my detriment. Mm -hmm. So you said something earlier about making implicit power structures explicit, which I really like. One of the things that I often say is that the power comes with the role and not with the person. 
So in a group of people, someone has to have the executive function. Someone has to make decisions. But that power comes with the role of being CEO or team lead. It's not that person and people who try to take on the power for themselves. That's what creates implicit power structures, I think. I would absolutely agree with that. I think one of the things that we've struggled with as a company is the idea that while we are very inclusive, we strive not to advantage people unfairly. We are still a company with a hierarchy. There's definitely still somebody in charge, and his name is Isaac. And other people have decision-making authority and stuff like that. And one of the problems that we had when we were making some early hires is people thought they were coming into this open source sort of utopia project uh, where they get to work on open source all the time and they'd be entirely self-directed and it was all about, you know, sunshine and rainbows. But actually, you know, we're a company and we're going to ask you to do things and you're going to have to do them whether or not you feel like doing them that day. And having a hierarchy is not counter to the goals of inclusiveness and equality. It's just how a company works. If a company is to survive, you have to do stuff you don't want to do sometimes, right? If it wasn't not fun sometimes, we probably wouldn't pay you. One of the things I point to is the way that anarchists organize, because it actually isn't cats and dogs living together. People take on leadership functions, but it's for a specific purpose, and it's often for a specific period of time as well. So, Lori, you mentioned how being a company is still a priority, even though you are working on open source. So can you talk about a little more about what's distinct about working in open source, but also working in a company? It's a tricky balance to strike. The purpose of NPM as a company is to keep the NPM registry running to get running forever. That's what it was for. In 2013, the NPM registry was sort of famous for going down all the time. Like it had exceeded its, its donated hardware and the sort of half of Isaac's free time that was allotted to it. And so the running joke was that node is down because NPM is down. And so the company was formed with, you know, that as, as the primary goal was like, it needs to be up all the time and it needs to be up forever. There's two ways to do that. You can form a foundation or you can form a company. And we've looked at the people who'd formed foundations around um, open source registries and the situation was not great. And the situation has remained not great. They have a fixed income from sort of reluctant donors who give them a certain amount of money and that amount of money doesn't go up, but their usage goes up. And so their job gets harder and harder. It's not fun. They can't add new features. They can barely keep on top of security things. They're good people doing the best job that they can, but it's really, it doesn't seem like the best way to organize that. So we went the other way. We decided that we were going to wrap a business model around this open source company. And that way, hopefully, the amount of money that we would, we were making would scale with the amount of usage that people were putting into NPM. The more people liked it, uh, the more money we'd, we'd make. And the more money we'd make, the more we could plow into the open source and everything would get better. And so far, so good on that plan. We have been able to scale by a factor of 400 since 2014. We used to get a million downloads a day, and now we get 400 million downloads a day. And the registry is still up, which is awesome. But occasionally there's conflicts, right? You know, there's some stuff that doesn't directly make us money that we can't work on right now. Because the primary job of the company has to be to survive. If the company decides to plow a ton of money into open source magic and it doesn't make enough money to survive, then we have failed. We have failed both as a company and we have failed our open source users. So there is a tension there between deciding what we have to do for open source versus what we have to do to survive and when we can do which sort of things. 
sometimes it solves itself. One of the biggest tensions I felt for a long time was search. Search was bad. It was always bad on the old website. And the thing about search is that it improves the open source experience enormously, but it doesn't make any money. And getting search right is very expensive. You have to have a lot of specialized expertise. You basically have to have a couple of people whose full-time job it is to decide how search should work and to keep up with changes in the ecosystem. And we just, you know, we only have 20 people and most of them spend all of their time just keeping up with the registry's growth. We didn't have time to invest in search and it became a more and more critical problem. And open source saved us. These two guys, both called Andre, they built us a search engine. They were like, here's npms.io. It's really good search for NPM. It is this beautiful architecture of like five build pipelines and 15 signals and a bunch of elastic search and a bunch of processes that we've written for you. The whole thing is open source and they just gave it to us. They were just like, here. Honestly, we spent the first month in a sort of like confused paralysis. We were like, we have to pay you for this. This is too valuable. You can't just give this open source thing to a commercial. <laughs> and they were like, no, just put better search on the website. We really want better search on the website. Here is this tremendously valuable thing. And we were like, oh my goodness, thank you so much. And that is why NPM search is good now because the open source community stepped up and said, okay, well, NPM Inc. doesn't have the resources to do this thing and it's still open source. So here you go, which is just awesome. Like I'm amazed that it works that way. And I'm incredibly grateful that it works that way. The great thing, though, is that you had a place to put it, which was nice. Right. Like we're still, you know, NPM Inc. is still paying for the servers, right? Like there's a pile of servers and they cost a bunch of money every month and a bunch of bandwidth goes into it. And we, you know, maintain those services. But, you know, we could never have afforded the development work. It was two very, very good developers working on it for about six months in their spare time. Like that's I don't know how you calculate how much that's worth, but it's worth a lot of money. And we didn't have that money to spend on it. So we're very happy to keep paying for the servers that these other people built. How does NPM monetize? Essentially, we decided to pay for a feature that it, it would make you uncomfortable if you weren't paying for it. So NPM is free for open source. Like GitHub, you can host as much uh, open source software on the registry as you want. If you uh, want private code that's shared just with your company or your team or just for yourself, then you pay for that, again, much like GitHub. You can do it as a SaaS, you know, you just go to the website and sign up and then you can NPM publish with dash dash access equals restricted. And you've got private packages instead of public packages and they work exactly the same as your public packages, which is nice. Or if you are a very big company and you want a bunch of extra features like security scanning and you want it to integrate with your single sign-on and you want to be able to check licenses and stuff like that, we have a thing called NPM Enterprise, which is software that you download uh, and run on your own hardware inside your firewall and people pay for that as well. It's really in, in, interesting how um, you talked about the difference between a foundation and a company. I'm on the board of Ruby Together, and Ruby Together funds infrastructure projects in Ruby. And we are exactly in that position you're talking about where we get funding from companies who want to give back and want to invest in infrastructure. But we're finding that there's a finite number of companies that are willing to do that. And so we really struggle with funding. And... Another thing that, that we struggle with is companies asking for a feature that only benefits them, balancing that against the general work of keeping rubygems.org running and the maintenance and security and everything else, all the important work that our paid developers are doing. We generally have to say no and ask them to contribute in the form of doing the open source work contributing to the open source library for their particular need, but then that means that we have to maintain it. So 
it's kind of a, a difficult position to be in. The longer we stay in the model of being a business that supports open source rather than a project that begs for money, the better I feel about the way that we went. Somebody in the chat is asking, has revenue also scaled by 400? Well, revenue started at zero, so it's definitely scaled by 400. Divide by zero. We make infinitely more money than we made at the beginning of 2014. Oh, math. <laughs> we also get more efficient at running the registry all the time. The registry costs a lot more to run in 2017 than it did in 2014, but not 400 times more. We have got a lot, lot better at running the registry. You know, that's one of the things that we're monetizing is like we have become really world-class experts at running open source registries and running software registries. So there are open source alternatives to what we do. There's open source, there's uh, Synopia. Synopia has a spinoff now. I forget what it's called. You know, if you wanted to host your own private packages using open source software, you could, but it's kind of a pain in the ass and we're much better at it than you. And it only costs seven bucks a user. So Unless your time is really very, very worthless, it's going to be much better for us to do it for you than to do it yourself. And that seems like the right way to organize things. That seems like a good exchange of value. We will do, we will save you time and it will be worth it for you. I have a question about that because I've worked on similar open source arrangements with an enterprise version. And I hope this doesn't come across as confrontational because I don't mean it to be anytime. You have an enterprise version of a thing and a free version of the thing, and they do competing things. There's an incentive to make the free version not as good at those things. Uh, how does NPM deal with that? I can't say that I've noticed it. Obviously, they do the same things, right? They both will store and publish packages and distribute them and stuff like that. I think the thing that keeps us honest is that there's just so many NPM users, right? There's seven and a half million people use NPM, and that number goes up all the time. The psychic pressure of doing the right thing when seven and a half million people are watching is really very strong, right? Yeah. Like, I, I don't want to suggest that you're doing anything in bad faith. I mean things like you said uh, just a minute ago that you can set up your own NPM registry, but it isn't very easy. And it's easier to do it, to have you do it, which is true. But in part, maybe that's because you're not putting the attention in to making it easy. I see. That's true. You know, there are open source registries, but our own registry is not open source. The registry that runs NPM is not open source. And that's because that's the thing that we decided to charge for. Would we ever make it open source? I don't know. Maybe when we're profitable? <laughs> As I said, there's, there's a tension there between things that you would do if you were entirely, if you had infinite money and all you were trying to do is open source versus if you were trying to survive. I can confidently state that I think we're doing, you know, the best possible thing for our users by doing things that the way that we're doing. I can also confidently state that there are some people who disagree uh, <laughs> when, you know, when there's seven and a half million users, like, you know, 0.001% of them is still a couple hundred people who are very angry at you all the time. Yeah, um, I'm, I, I don't think you're doing anything wrong. I'm actually interested in how you navigate that tension to do the right thing. Yeah, that, but that's how we navigate it, is if enough people said, no, that gives me the squicks, if enough people would get angry at us, that's our barometer. The, the NPM community tells us when this would or would not be bad. You know, occasionally we'll have a conversation with a less clueful VC, let's say, and they'll be like, you know, 9 billion downloads a month? Why don't you just charge a penny a download? <laughs> You'd be profitable tomorrow. And I'd be like, sure, but that would be terrible, right? Like, that would be the world's biggest dick move. And so we're never going to do that. So 
the community is the thing that drives us and is, the community is the thing that, that keeps us honest. So, you know, our, our moral compass is external. How do you interact with the community? How do you give the community a voice on what you're doing since you're a company? I could say that, you know, we carefully set up all these processes and channels and we listen carefully and do regular feedback. But honestly, like the primary way is Twitter, right? Like we're all on Twitter all the time. And if anything goes wrong, we hear about it within seconds from Twitter. One of our, one of the primary jobs of our monitoring team very early on in the job of the company, one of their goals was, let's see if we can spot problems with the registry faster than Twitter can. And it took us six months to reach there. For six months, it was still that we would get tweets about things being down before, you know, the three minute threshold that Nagios requires to start alerting about something, right? People notice instantly that NPM is down because it has broken their day. At least your monitoring is very effective. <laughs> our monitoring is amazingly effective now. We now serve that purpose for like our CDN and a bunch of other services we use. We notice that they're down before they notice that they're down. You have you have Just, 7 million sensors. It's right. Good. Exactly. How do you beat that? You recently released NPM 5. Yes. So we that's... Released, when you say recently, we released it this morning. Indeed. <laughs> so that's a major version update. Uh, it seems to do a lot of cool things. And what I'm wondering is... How do you manage that for releasing software to, you know, on the order of 10 million people? It has to work. It has to be compatible. There has to be an upgrade path. I mean, for me, it just worked. But I think that's an amazing feat of engineering. And I just like to talk about that. Um, well, I have to give props to our CLI team for this. Kat and Rebecca, they have been doing an amazing job on this release. It's interesting because it seems like we did all of this stuff really suddenly and we're moving super fast but really this stuff has been the reason it's been such a good release is because the planning for this stuff started 18 months ago we talked about we have to get the tests working on windows 47 percent of our users on windows uh we talked about we have to get our own test passing it to get our tests working better we have to you know lay the groundwork for all of this stuff there was a good year where it looked like npm was just sort of treading water and what was really happening was all of the groundwork was being made for what has happened in the last six months which has just been this blizzard of new features and the reason that this blizzard of new features could happen was because so much careful groundwork had been put in we also have a strong back channel a strong beta channel the npm at next release will always give you the version of npm that's going to get released two weeks from now so the people who care, the people who run build big farms, those those sorts of things, they know that they should always be running NPM at next because their users in two weeks are going to get that version. So if they want to avoid bugs before they happen, they can use that. For NPM 5, because it was such a big release, we, we got even further ahead of that. We you know created a, a separate NPM package called NPM 5 that if you knew about it, you could install and try out. We released that, I think, six weeks ago was the first release of that. So for six weeks, people all over the world have been trying out this thing to make sure that it was going to work properly. So we didn't just, you know, drop it on the world and go, probably no bugs. We were pretty sure <laughs> that it was going to work. Um, although we did have to release, as is the natural law of things, we did have to release a patch release, you know, a couple of hours after dropping the 5.0.0 release. <laughs> we found a bug and had to release 5.0.1. <laughs> that has never happened before in the history of software. I don't think we've ever had a 0.0 release that lasted more than a couple of hours. I'm really happy that you get a chance to highlight all of the, the hidden work that goes into something like that, because it looks like it's just so. It just you know shows up in our in our terminal and it works, but really it's 
a huge amount of work and amount of thought that goes into how you design a release like that and how you execute it. We were talking about the various methods of feedback. Uh, and I was saying that we listen primarily on Twitter. We also have a bunch of other things. We have support channels. People can t- contact us via email and via web forms. And about two-thirds of the support questions that we answer are from open source free users. Everything from how do I get this installed to, you know, what is even this NPM thing? Or we have a class of questions we call homework questions, where somebody's basically just asking us how to write some software for them. And our support team has got pretty good at going, here are some good resources on learning how to program, and we will not teach you via email how to code. I think the thing that was interesting here is that the issue tracker, the NPM issue tracker on the open source project is probably our least valuable signal as far as talking to the community goes, because it's sometimes a source of valuable, detailed bug reports. It's not a signal proportional to the actual impact of any particular problem. The people who know how to use GitHub to the point that they would know what repo to go to and know how to file an issue, they are a certain class of experienced professional software developers. And that's not the average NPM user. The average NPM user is somebody who started using NPM six months ago, right? That's the thing about exponential growth is that 50% of our users turned up within the last six months. So it's permanent September in NPM land. There's always a bunch of people who are just getting to grips with this piece of software and they are not looking for extra configuration options. They are not looking for it to start scolding them when they do something that is a little bit lazy and possibly insecure. That is not what they want. Some people want highly secure package signing that will like, you know, let you say to 100% certainty that this bit came from this computer on this date. And if you were listening to the issue tracker, you would think that was NPM's number one problem. It's definitely a problem. It's a problem, in fact, that we intend to solve. But relative priority of things from the vast majority of users is not the same as how priority looks on the issue tracker. And I don't know that we've come up with a good way of of solving that problem yet. Are there ways that you make that visible within NPM or to the community at large? Or are you still working on that, too? Make what visible? The the proportion of people who are making support requests versus people who are posting to the issue tracker. The support team and the engineering team work hand in hand. The support team are a big source of information to the engineering team on what they should be building and where the pain points are. The issue tracker is more of, so, of a source of information for the CLI team than it is for the registry team. The, the bulk of the NPM team works on the registry. Only two people work on the full CLI software which is, I think, probably different from people how people imagine how NPM works. The thing about the registry is that it's just kind of oxygen. It's sort of in the background and you don't notice it. Um, and it's because we spend so much time making sure that you don't notice it. So the signals that we get from the support team, we have a system called the support hero, which I really like. And I can't, I wish I could give credit to whoever invented it because it wasn't me, but somebody introduced it into the company. Uh, it might have been uh, Raquel Velez. But basically, there's this problem with support teams and engineering teams, which is that the engineering team in other companies I've worked, they feel like the support team is bugging them, and the support team feels like the engineering team doesn't want to hear from them, and the the relationship is antagonistic. At NPM, we have Slack channels for everything, and in the support channel, every day somebody is nominated as the support hero from each of the engineering teams. So that day, it is that engineer's job to be in the support channel and available to answer questions. That does a bunch of good things for us. 
One is that it reduces the barrier that the support team feels to ask a question in the first place because they know this person is here to do this job. It eliminates any resentment that an engineer might feel. They're not like, oh, you're making me ship my code slower because you're asking me all of these questions because that's their job that day. Their job is to answer the questions. They're doing their job. No one's going to be, you know, why was this project shipped late like you were support hero that day? Um, you can't write a lot of code when you're a support hero. And the other thing is because it cycles, it means that every engineer has spoken to somebody in, in support within the last week or two. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody's established a rapport because every engineer speaks to every support person all the time. And that means that the, the channel for getting stuff out of support land into engineering and getting those problems fixed and knowing what problems need to get addressed faster, I think that channel is a lot has a lot higher bandwidth at NPM than other places I've worked. I think people could also try that to bridge other barriers in their organization, like let's say between dev and ops, or if you're a DevOps organization, then between DevOps and the other half of DevOps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we uh, are starting to do that with other teams as well. Currently, marketing reports to me, and one of the things that I'm trying to do is, is get that into marketing, make sure that the engineering teams who are building, you know, building the website and, and, you know, putting words on the website, which marketing gets worried about, have a really strong channel to marketing and vice versa, that, you know, they're not antagonistic, that the web team doesn't go, oh, marketing won't let us ship this thing, or we're waiting for this thing from marketing. Like, I want marketing to be part of the team that's putting that website together. We want to give a uh, a shout out to one of our newest Patreon supporters, Linnea Kylan Runquist, and I'm sorry if I massacred your name. And remind everyone that we are 100% listener supported at this point. And if you would like to support our work, if you believe in what we're doing, and if you're enjoying these conversations, however you listen to them, become a patron, show your support in that way, and in exchange, you will get access to our Slack community which is made up of listeners and panelists and former guests. And we have some great discussions there. So don't miss out. Become a patron at any level. And you can find us at patreon.com slash greater than code. We are very pleased to announce that uh, we have our very first guest blog post up. Jacob Stobel wrote a wonderful blog post titled Honesty, Kindness, and Inspiration. Pick three. And uh, go check it out on our blog, greaterthancode.com. So, Lori, I know you've worked in lots of different companies and doing lots of different roles. So in your opinion, what are some of the things that make a good team? Like, is there really a, a such thing as a 10x engineer? <laughs> That's such a leading question. Yes, and I am one. End of story. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Next oh, question. Yeah. 10x engineers, bro. No. If you have um, to ask, it's not you. Oh. Uh, my one-liner about 10x engineers is that everybody programs at the same speed. But some people have got 90% of their work out of the way, and so they appear to go faster. There's a bunch of ways you can do that. The good way is if you automate a lot of your work. If you don't spend three seconds trying to remember a git command every time, if you have automated your deploys down to a single button press, if your tests are super fast, if your coding environment is just the way you like it, if you don't do anything other than coding, in your working day because you've got everything else out of the way, then you will appear to go a lot faster than everybody else because all you do is code. That's the great way to be the mythical 10x programmer. The bad way to be the, the 10x programmer is to just write a lot of code and not care so much about technical debt. Just churn out a bunch of code and ship it and be like, well, I didn't write any tests, but hey, it works now. 
That way you become the 10x programmer by putting 90% of your work onto other people. Somebody else, there's nine other people behind you, like cleaning up and refactoring and writing tests and going, why is this written this way? And, you know, fixing the databases and answering the ops alert because you wrote code and shipped it to production without writing any tests. So there's no such thing as a 10x programmer, but there's definitely two classes of people who appear to go a lot faster than their coworkers. I um, disagree slightly. I have an existence proof for the 10x programmer, so I believe that they can exist. But I will say that it doesn't really matter because hiring managers can't detect them. <laughs> and they're so rare as to be essentially non-existent. Yeah, it's definitely like, you know, obviously some people are geniuses, but you can't build a hiring plan around them. You can't be like, and then we'll hire our third genius. Like, no, that's not going to yeah. work. Out. I always just say that they do exist and it doesn't matter. <laughs> So how do you hire Lori? How do you make sure you're getting good people that are going to integrate well with the team, that are going to be productive, that know the tool chain? Again, I would say like diversity and inclusion, like listening to support from and listening to feedback from the users, it is a thing that we're not perfect at and it's a problem that we're still trying to get better at. There's a bunch of things we've discovered that don't work. There's a bunch of things that we threw out. We don't do whiteboard interviews. We don't have coding exercises. We don't have any kind of live pairing as part of our hiring process because they will find the kinds of people who can do those things, but those things are not programming. That's not what programming is like. Programming is not done on a whiteboard. Programming is not done usually under 15 minutes of time pressure. It's not done without the ability to Google things. If your hiring process has those constraints, you will hire people who can do those things and might be able to program, but you'll exclude a bunch of people who can are perfectly good programmers, even you know fantastic programmers, who can't do those things. You'll get false negatives. And also, you're not necessarily hiring for people who are good at that, right? The people who are good at coding under pressure are not necessarily the kinds of people who think slowly and carefully about an architecture before putting it together. Everybody needs those people in an organization. And if your hiring process excludes those people, you get a company full of hackers who they move fast and break things. And that's not a compliment, right? <laughs> like breaking things. It's not a good part of engineering, breaking things. And also some of our best engineers at NPM are people who could not possibly have passed an interview process that worked like that. They are people who, you know, they're just shy and retiring folks or, you know, they get socially anxious if someone's looking over their shoulder. And if you just leave them alone in a quiet corner of the room, they will pump out some of the best code you've ever seen. And if you sit next to them while they're writing it, it looks like they can't even type. So our hiring process uh, avoids all of those things. I'm going through a hiring process right now, and um, I just had to do a take-home um, exercise. Um, I was happy that at least it wasn't a trivia problem. It related to the domain that the business operated in. But I felt really weird at the end of it because I wanted a code review. And you know, because it was a take-home exercise, I couldn't get a code review from a trusted friend. And... I don't consider the code finished until someone else has had a chance to look over it. And I've had a chance to talk through the architecture and explain it because that process leads to better software. And that process is how software works. So I feel like writing code in isolation, to your point, can create a false positive or a false negative. Because, you know, if there's something wrong with my coding exercise that I would have discovered just by talking through it with another individual, 
that's how things work in the real world. And that's what I will do on the job. But that's not reflected in the interview process. The whole point of technical hiring is to come up with signals or proxies that represent the competencies you want in a hire that they can demonstrate in the two hours they're sitting in front of you. And that's essentially impossible. And really, and I keep harping on this because it's so important, what you have to do is have a hiring process that's better than random chance, than flipping a coin on whether you hire someone. And if your hiring process filters out people who are shy or who don't fit in with your, your filters, you're doing worse than random chance. Exactly. Also, to Caroline's point about having a code review and talking it through, I think programmers underestimate or discount how much of their job is about talking and not programming, right? 50% of your job is writing the code, maybe not even 50% of your job. 50, the other 50% of your job is discussing the problem. It's either working out what the problem is in the first place by talking to the person who has identified that problem or it's uh, explaining what your code does to other people so that they know how to use this library you wrote or this API that you put together. So either you're talking out loud or you're writing documentation about how it should be used, but like communication is this huge part of programming. Unless you're literally working by yourself, you need to be effective at working in teams. So that's the part of our interview process that I think works really well because we do our entire interview process. It's it's maybe a total of, you talk to a, a total of about eight people. So it's about eight hours of conversation about technical things. We get to find out how you talk about technical stuff. We get to hear how you solve a problem from first principles by hearing you sort of talk aloud as you solve it. And that is part of the job, right? That's not some proxy to doing the job. That is the job. I need you to be able to do that as an engineer. I need you to be able to talk to another engineer about what the problem is and how you're going to solve it. So that works. Filtering for that. I think is a very effective and fair way of constructing a hiring process. And the coding, you just kind of have to hope. We're lucky because NPM has such a strong brand with developers that we get an embarrassment of riches when we try to hire. We, we get hundreds of applicants, like literally hundreds of applicants for every job, which is very unusual for engineering jobs. And also we get very, very experienced people. And with very experienced people, the chances of somebody who's been coding for five years not being any good at coding at all, it's not zero, but it's it's pretty low. So, Lori, how did you figure out that the whiteboarding and the code exercises were not working in your hiring process? Because you said that's something that you don't do anymore. I found it out because in the trousers of time, the two different ways that the universe can always go, just before Isaac came to me and said, hey, I'm thinking about turning NPM into a company, I was in the middle of a year off after my previous startup, and I had just started interviewing at other companies. I'd, I'd been like, man, being a CTO is a lot of work and really stressful. I'm just going to be an individual contributor this time. It's going to be so nice and relaxing. So I was literally mid-interview with five different companies when Isaac came along and was like, hey, will you be my CTO? <laughs> um, and my reaction was literally, had anybody asked other than Isaac, the answer would have been no. But I love working with Isaac so much. It was a no-brainer. But that is that is where our interviewing policy came from, because I just spent five times five companies, so 25 hours in interviews with various companies and seen all of their interview processes and like failed out of a couple of them. Like I won't name the company, but one company bailed on me after a 30 minute phone screen because I wasn't a culture fit because they were an agile shop. 
And I was like, well, you know, agile has pros and cons. It's a complicated subject. It's not a panacea. And they were like, no, it is a panacea. And if you don't <laughs> believe that, then you can't work here. And I was like, well, okay, I guess that is a, you know, that is a culture fit problem and that your culture is terrible. <laughs> right. That's valuable information that goes both ways. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I'd, I'd just been through a bunch of really crappy interviews. I'd been through a bunch of interviews that I was like, yes, yes, I can solve this on a whiteboard. This tells you nothing about how good a programmer I am. Why are you asking me this question? So I was determined, having been through a bunch of crappy interviews, that I wasn't going to inflict them on other people. Yeah, the day Agile died is the day it became a dogma, but that's a whole other episode. <laughs> Lori, now that you have hired some good engineers, how do you start to organize them so they can work together in a good way? That is, again, one of those those tricky things that we're still working on. When we put the company together, everybody was one team. And, you know, there were only, you know, five or six of us. So that worked really great. Everybody could cross communicate and inter-team communication was really good because there was only one team. And, you know, we shipped software really fast and everybody felt good about it. We got up to about 18 and people were like, oh, this isn't working anymore. There's too much back channel. I, I can't keep track of everything that's going on. So, you know, we, we created boundaries of responsibility and we we're like, okay, these three people are working on this thing. These three people are working on this thing. And that reduced the amount of internode communication that we needed to do. But it created, you know, silos. As everybody knows, as soon as you have teams, you know, the lack of communication that allows people to get on with their day, lowering of communication also creates the possibility that vital information will get missed. And that began to happen. So as we approached another scaling threshold around 24, 25 people, we were like, okay, that's not working either. We need to fold people back into a single team. Um, there cannot be an antagonistic uh, relationship between teams of like, we want to get this done versus they want to get that done. So now we are focused more around projects. There's a pool of engineers and he, these are the projects and these engineers are working on this project. But, you know, that's just this time. They're not some part of a special team that always works on that project. And that kind of like the support here, that means that people rotate between things more often. So people get less bored and people, uh, your bus number goes down on, on all of your projects because more people have worked on more stuff. It's not a perfect system. All things are kind of fuzzy. Like, Nobody works on the CLI team except on the CLI except the two CLI team members. And that is because the CLI is damn complicated and you need to have been working on it at least three months to even understand what it's doing and six months to be productive. So it's very specialized work. So that team remains its own isolated team, but the entire services team. So both the website and the registry and all of the backend services, they're all one team that shuffle around between projects. But it's, as somebody said in the chat, you know, it's, it's an NP hard problem. Not only do you not know if it's going to work, you're not even sure if it is working until you've looked back three months and go, was that bad? That was bad. And then you have to fix it. So you mentioned some sort of specific steps you took. I am really interested in how did you decide on those steps? How did you make the changes? How did you decide if those changes were successful? The practicality of how we made the changes, we just made the changes. As I've said, NPM is not a open source wonderland where everybody operates by consensus. Um, <laughs> we were like, we're making this change. These teams are getting reorganized. That's how that's Yeah, I, I guess what I specifically meant there is, did you do anything to sort of front load it, the changes to make them more? Did you consider like how to make the change, even though it was, yeah, it was sort of a top down thing, how to make it in a way that would be more successful? The answer is gradually. You can't just say overnight, okay, this is reorganized. It's we are moving towards this structure. 
Um, we have put this person in charge of what we think is eventually going to be the services team. These three people who are rolling off of that project are now going to be reporting to her. Those other three people are still working on that thing. We're not going to rock that boat while it's mid-process. We're going to see how, how this manager is doing with these three people in this new structure. And if it appears to be working, we'll fold more people into the team. So we trying to avoid the anti-pattern that large companies have of, you know, everything decentralized must be centralized for efficiency. And everything centralized must be decentralized so that we can be agile, right? Like both of those things are true, right? If you, if you <laughs> centralizing things does make them more efficient and decentralizing things does make them more agile. So you can't go whole hog on any one of those things. So it's a continuous and iterative process. It's never done. You know, we also don't say, all right, stop the universe. We're doing a reorg. We are always in the, the mode that work is going to get done no matter what. One thing that I could suggest that has helped with team changes like that is to find someone on the team who you can sell the change to that agrees that it's good and have them help you advocate for that change within the team. I think you are approaching this from more of a big company perspective where the teams are bigger and, and the person selling the change is further away from the person who's making the change. So to some degree that happens, but I, you know our team is only 24 people. It's still small enough that this kind of change gets discussed at lunchtime and everybody just <laughs> arrives at the yeah. conclusion that it's a it's, good idea. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very much a technique to bridge sort of the power differential between the person proposing the change and the people affected by the change. And if that differential is smaller, then there's less work that needs to be done there. I should mention now um, another key part of our culture from the early days that we had tried to keep alive. There's this book called Turn the Ship Around, which I recommend if you haven't read, it's a very unusual book for a, a programmer to care about because it's written by a submarine captain, um, like a nuclear submarine captain. But it's about team structure and management. and It's an excellent, excellent book. And the key takeaway of the book, I think, is this thing that he refers to as leader-leader management, which is there is a hierarchy, but the hierarchy does not mean that instructions start at the top and flow down and everybody does only what they are told because there's no possible way that you could you know, operate something as complex as a nuclear submarine that way. And you definitely couldn't run an efficient startup that way. The magic word in a leader-leader context is the word intend. You say, I intend to. What I intend to means is I've looked at the situation. I know what my job is. I think the logical next step is that I should do this thing. And unless you tell me not to do it, I'm going to do that thing. People do that all the time. People say, I'm going to do this unless you think it's a bad idea. You know, feel free to interrupt me. Tell me if it's wrong. Like, but I intend to that magic word. It, it formalizes it. You just say it. You just say, I intend to ship user ACL to. I'm going to do it today. In um, the military world, that's called unless otherwise directed. Right. And you don't need to. <laughs> You don't need to have a conversation about it. You don't need to worry that you're hurting anybody's feelings, that you're trampling over boundaries of responsibility, because everybody knows what I intend to means. And it means that the whole team can operate faster because they don't have to ask for permission. They just know that they need to notify everybody of what's going to happen next. Well, this has been an absolutely great conversation, Lori, and I really appreciate the insights that you shared. We're kind of at the uh, at the end of our time now, so we'd like to move into reflections. Astrid, so do you want to lead us off? Yes. So my reflection, Lori, is based on actually one of the first things you said, which was about how you always considered yourself a web developer because you were just really interested in contributing to creating the web. 
and you weren't always so concerned about whether or not somebody considered you a programmer or not, which I thought was really a different way of thinking about what it means to be a part of this whole world. Because a lot of times, at least from what I hear when people talk to me, they feel very excluded from technology because they feel like they have to gain all sorts of mastery to be allowed to be called, you know, a programmer. And I liked the way that you described it because it was more about being a contributor as opposed to like being the best at this particular language so that you get to tell other people how amazing you are. I'm thinking a lot about hiring practices, going through the job search myself right now and thinking about, I want to remember what this process is like so that when I find the organization that I want to settle into and start contributing to, I have a chance to influence the hiring practices to make them better and make that experience better for the people who come after me. Yeah, on that note, I really liked what you said, Lori, about making your interview process focus on having people talk to each other about software. Um, I've always been a big fan of pair programming interviews because, well, partly because I do really well on them and partly because as an interviewer, I find it the best way so far that I've found to figure out where somebody is at. But I've always had to recognize that pair programming interviews select for people who are comfortable pairing. Um, and that's not all programmers, and it's certainly not all good programmers. So I really like your approach of focusing on reasoning about software and talking about it with other people. I hadn't really thought about it recently, but that does seem to me to be one of the fundamental skills of software, and I like that your process focuses on it. Thank you. So my reflection for today is about how to make changes within an organization. I really liked, Laurie, what you were talking about. With a small enough organization like yours, you can make changes in a way that I guess I'm extrapolating that a larger organization, it wouldn't work for a larger organization. And because I always like to harp on system models and because there is a Gerald Weinberg book for every occasion, I would like to recommend uh, a book he wrote called Becoming a Change Artist, which provides these really incredible system models for making change, understanding what to expect from a change, the way it disrupts the status quo. It uses a model of change that actually came from uh, childhood development. And it's just, it's amazing. I think what I'm taking away from today is when I sort of lump it all in one place, I've done a lot more work thinking about people and structure and power structures than I think of myself as having done. feel like when I list it all together, like, oh yeah, that is a new job skill that I've acquired recently. (laughs) It's thinking about how to organize large groups of people to get stuff done. And I'm definitely not taking a victory lap. I'm definitely not thinking, yeah, I've nailed this. This is going really well. But I certainly have tried a bunch of things. Um, and listing them all together uh, is making me appreciate the amount of work that we've put into that as a company. Thanks so much for our conversation today, Lori. It was really great. I enjoyed everything that you were talking about, especially a lot of the discussion around structure and hiring, which was really informative. I think that our listeners will appreciate it. Thanks and bye, everybody. 